Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. All right. We are at the end of our series of teaching, Ready for War. We've been looking at Ephesians chapter 6, and we have read verses 10 through 24 now. For the last 12 weeks, we've been touching pieces of this week after week to hopefully we can learn how to engage the spiritual battle that we all are in if we are Christians. You are in a spiritual battle. And the final principle, you might um, uh, not have seen it right away, I want to share with you tonight, or today, pardon me, is these last few verses where Paul is sharing with us some final thoughts. You know, this idea sort of rings true, that young soldiers are supposed to be trained by older soldiers, people who have been there, people who have uh, experienced battle, experienced war, people who have survived and have a lot of wisdom to share. And for Paul, or for us, I should say, Paul is that older one, that older soldier who wants to share with us. He says at the end of his life that he had fought the good fight, that he had finished the race, that he had kept the faith, and he said, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Paul is that soldier who has survived the spiritual battle. And in these final moments with these Ephesian Christians, what he's trying to do is help them understand how to win this spiritual battle. He says that we are in a war. We've got to make sure we know that. That our enemy, that it's against us, while he has power, he is not more powerful than our God. He is the defeated enemy. That the war that we're in is a war that has already been won in Jesus Christ. It's already happened. And that we must wear the armor provided to us if we're going to have success. And finally, these last two weeks, what we've said is to win, you and I are going to have to practice some important disciplines. Discipline one last week was prayer. We've got to learn to pray if we're going to wear this armor well. We've got to be people who know how to pray. And the discipline this week we're going to talk about so that we can have victory is that of connection, of being together. You see, you and I as human beings were designed by God to live a connected life. We weren't designed to live isolated and all alone. We were made by a God of connection, the Holy Trinity. And it's essential that you and I develop the ability to have some solitude, but it's vital that we develop healthy connection. One of Satan's most masterful schemes is the ability to make us feel isolated and alone as we walk this journey and fight this battle. And when we are alone, we are most often willing to give up, to quit, and to grow tired. And in these closing remarks here that Kevin read for us, Paul is showing us the essential ingredients of what it takes to kind of build a togetherness with people that helps you win the war. And you see, he starts with, point number one, a kind of openness together that you've got to have. There's an openness. You look in verse 21. He says, so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm going to send Tychicus, I think is how you're going to say it, or whatever Kevin said. We'll go with it. It's fine the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, to tell you everything. To tell you everything. You see, Paul had a bond with these Christians in Ephesus. 
They learned to lean on each other. They shared with each other. It wasn't just a teacher-to-student relationship. Paul had a connection with them. They were brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And at this time in his life, he's cut off from them. He's imprisoned. And he knows it's vital that he stays connected to them. And there are two things that he says about his connection that you and I need to extract from Paul and learn how to do if we're going to create a kind of connection with each other that helps us win this battle. The first thing is he addresses how he is. And we need to be addressing addressing with each other how we are. You notice he says in verse 21, so that you may know how I am. Paul starts with, I want to share with you how I'm doing. Now, I don't think this, how he's doing, Paul is referring, I don't think he's referring to some informal greeting that you and I would use, you know. We sort of substituted in our language, our common language, how are you, to mean an informal greeting. And we're not necessarily asking for details or extended information. When I say how are you, um, typically what I'm saying is just tell me good and keep moving, you you know, like we're, we're fine. But when Paul's saying, I want to share with you how I am, He's actually getting into the essence of it, the depth of it, what it really means. He sees the how you are question, or how are you, as vital for the development of a real relationship. Vital. And there are two things usually involved in the how are you question that really should help us build a kind of relationship. So here, I want you to pay close attention because if we're going to build the kind of relationships with each other, that will help us battle in this spiritual battle and find victory, you've got to learn how to do this right. And so when we get into the how you are question, there are two things important. One is, one thing involved with the how you are question is confession. Confession. Now, we don't really like to talk too much about that, but this is vital to us. And Paul practiced this. When you go through and read his letters, he was not just some highly exalted, elevated teacher whom people looked at and said, this man has no sin, this man has no problems, he has no needs. In fact, he just finished asking them to pray for him. He said, I need help having the kind of courage and boldness to preach that I need to be a preacher, so will you pray for me? He's asking for help. He would say to Timothy, I am of the chiefest of sinners, meaning that's who I am. He expressed in Romans that he had a struggle with coveting, that he he had difficulty with that. He would share oftentimes about discouragement that he would feel. And he would even say to the church in Philippians, uh, uh, Philippi that he at times had a longing to depart this earth and just go be with the Lord. He was exhausted. But he knew to remain in the body would be beneficial for them. And so he was sharing with them. He was confessing. And you know, James says this in James 5.16, that when we confess to one another and pray for each other, will find a kind of healing that you won't find when you don't confess. Sin that is kept secret is sin that has strength. And struggling that is kept silent has the ability to remain. But when we find trusted people in our life and learn how to take a step of courage to confess and say, I just need you to pray for me because I'm feeling discouraged. I'm feeling frustrated. I've been angry for a week or a month and I just haven't been able to get this sort of bitterness out of me and... Friend, would you mind praying for me? Boy, that begins to really um, help us overcome some of our struggles and some of our sin. Saying that I have sin is not necessarily a confession. It's an acknowledgement. Confession is actually describing what you're struggling with. This might be a good test for you. Who in your life knows 
the things that you're most afraid of, that you're struggling with, that you're frustrated by? Are there actual people in your life that know some of those things that are bringing them to the throne of God and praying about them? Now, this doesn't mean that you have everybody know this stuff. In fact, that's not healthy to do that. Jesus, um, his relationship math is probably pretty good for us to model. He had 12 people that hung out, uh, you know, that hung out with him a lot. There were three that were really close to him, Peter, James, and John, and those are the ones that he, were, he was very intimate with. And that was a good suggestion for us to really think about how we have the kind of relationships we have in our life. But you know, sharing the question of how are you is not just about confession, although that's vital. It's also about celebration, sharing joy with each other. When you have a joyous occasion, when you have an event that takes place that's great, when something that's happening in your life is really positive, explaining to other people and sharing with other people how good God has been to you is a beautiful thing for us to do. You see, sharing good things, when that takes place, it sort of completes the circuit of joy. Have you ever had a really good meal at a great restaurant or maybe gone to a movie that you just ended up loving so much? What's one of the first things that you want to do when you eat that great meal at that great restaurant or you watch a movie that was just amazing? You want to share that with somebody, right? It almost completes the circuit of your experience. Like you eat this great meal at this great restaurant by this great chef. and You're just sitting there and you just kind of want to complete the circuit by telling somebody, you should go check out this place at this, uh, at this time because the chef is great. Or you watch a great movie and you come out and you're like, the next time you see somebody you say, man, this movie was great. You should go see it. What you're doing is completing the circuit of joy in your life. And that's important for us in our relationships. And Paul doesn't just say how we're doing. He also expresses what he's doing. And these are different. How you are and what you're doing are different things. And when we're going to create a kind of relationship with each other that we can fight this spiritual battle together, it starts with sharing with each other how we are, but it also moves to sharing with each other what we're doing, what we're doing in our life. Sharing with people what we're spending our time on, what we're investing our energies into, what we're giving our attention to. And these reasons are really important. Here's why you do this. First of all, because there might be some association, meaning people might actually be able to contribute to what you're doing. So when you start sharing with other people in your life the things that you're focused on, the things that you're working on, the things that you're investing into, they might have a connection with that. They might know the right people that might be able to help. They might have some insight. They themselves might have some skills that can contribute. But at the very least, you're inviting them into prayer, into your own life and what you're doing. And they begin to participate. So as they're praying about what you're doing and you're praying about what they're doing, there becomes a sort of connection that helps that grow. But when you share what you're doing, it's not just for association that other people can join in with you. It's also for accountability. One of the things that has gutted community in our culture today is our desire for connection and our apprehension or resistance to accountability. We don't like accountability. We don't like people to sort of hold us accountable to maybe our promises that we've made or our vows or our commitments that we've made or resolutions. We, it makes us uncomfortable. We get very defensive when people hold us accountable, like, hey, where were you? I missed you last week. It makes us sort of put up our defenses with people. But you know, the basis of any healthy community is accountability. 
If you don't have accountability, you don't have real expression of love. Imagine a family like this. Picture a father with children who does not care what his children do, how they turn out, and has no guiding impact on them. Just says, listen, I just want them to enjoy what they're doing, have a great time, I don't care. And they start messing up their life, or they start going down the wrong path, and you just say, hey, listen, they're people. They just need to do what they're going to do. And does not ever go to them and say, I'd like you to take a different route. Have you thought about doing it differently? If we saw that in a parent relationship, we would say, that father does not love his children. Now translate that to our relationships in Christ. When we're around each other, maybe we're complaining all the time. Or maybe we start gossiping. Or maybe we're withdrawing from the fellowship of the church. And somebody comes and they say, hey, are we sure we should be doing that? Or you're spending all your time in an area that maybe you shouldn't be spending all your time in. And somebody comes and says, are you sure you should be giving that much of your time to that thing? We've got to be willing to do that because, see, in accountability, what you have in people is a mirror to see where all your time and energy really is going. It's like a reflection or a printout of your bank statement that says, here's where your money went. That's what good friends can be for us. And they begin to ask you, are you sure this is the right place? So for us to build a kind of community, a kind of togetherness with each other to fight this battle, we've got to have openness. But with openness, we've got to handle that the right way. So the second thing Paul says we have to have is encouragement together. Encouragement. You see, when we're open with each other, we have a responsibility to fill that space with the right things. If you're going to trust me and I'm going to trust you to share both confession and celebration and share with you what I'm doing and let you hold me accountable in my life, in that space of that relationship, we've got to fill it with the right things if we're going to have this kind of uh, togetherness we're supposed to have. And so here's what Paul says in verse 22 about what we're supposed to do. He says, I have sent him, the guy Kevin was talking about, to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. You see, it starts with, first of all, what we're supposed to give, what we're supposed to fill that space with. So if you are trusting me and you're open and you're sharing with me and there's association and I'm holding you accountable and you're holding me accountable. And in that relationship space, what we're supposed to fill it with, Paul says, is encouragement. Now, this word is way more than a Hallmark card that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. That's not what encouragement is. That can be edification. That can be um, enlightenment. That can be um, maybe a word of comfort, but it's not all the way what encouragement is. The word encouragement is actually born out of the same exact word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. Paraclete. It's the same Greek word. And that word paraclete means to be one, a companion, who comes close to you, walks alongside of you, and helps you. That's what encouragement means. And it, there's two aspects to it. The first aspect is comfort. The word encouragement means to comfort, means to come alongside somebody and help them when they're hurting, to walk with them when they're suffering, to carry a load or a burden when they're overwhelmed, to walk alongside them and make their life just a little bit easier, to comfort them. But it also means to strengthen them, to strengthen them in what is good. So an encourager is one 
who if you decide this week that you're going to go to a nutritionist, I've heard about somebody who did this once, and you're going to get a diet plan, it was me, and you're going to get a diet plan of here's what you should eat, here's what an encourager is. An encourager is one who comes alongside and helps when I don't want to do that and reminds me and strengthens me and at times even eats the vegetables with me so that I am strengthened in the good things. Are you following with me? Encouragement is to strengthen people in the right things, which means it is encouragement for somebody to tell me you probably shouldn't eat that bowl of Reese Puff cereal. You shouldn't do that. That's encouragement. It's encouragement to say, are you sure we should go to Dairy Queen? It's encouragement to do that. If what I've told you is I want to eat this certain way, that's an encouragement. That's what it means. But he says it doesn't just say where we give encouragement. He also says where it's given. He says we're supposed to encourage people in their hearts. Now your heart for the Jewish writer, Paul, is your desire producer. It's the place where your preferences come. It's where your thoughts and your passions are born. And so everyone in here has a heart, has a desire. And he's saying you need to be comforted and strengthened in the place where you think, in the place where you have desires, in the place where you want things. Here's what this means in our relationships. Let me try to make this very practical for you. If you're thinking about how do I be a good friend to a brother or sister in Christ, and you're thinking how do I receive good friends, here's what this means to receive encouragement in your heart. It means that you and I have to be careful and very intentional friends. It means we have to think about our friendships with purpose in them. That we can't just take for granted our friendships like you would in school or in your neighborhood saying, we're friends because we have the same class or we have the same lunch together, so we just by happenstance sit by each other. Or we're, we're friends because we're the same, we're, we live by each other, we're neighbors. Everyone in this room is friends because we have a common cause and a common goal. Jesus Christ and seeing the Father one day. That's our commonality. So here's what it means about that. The goal of good friendship, listen carefully, the goal of good friendship is not just affirmation, just totally agreeing with the person. I'm venting to you and you're just like, yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. The goal of good friendship is not just affirmation. The goal of good friendship is not just information telling people how to do things. Those are different. The goal of good friendship is realization. Helping people connect with the truth. Always. Remember Paul said in Ephesians 4 that we as Christians are supposed to speak the truth in love, right? That's what it means to create a kind of relationship, a kind of connection that's healthy and good when we agree with, not just agree with each other and not just instruct each other, but help each other see the truth. So how do you do this? How do we help each other? Here's your practical part and we'll almost be done. You have to be grounded in godliness so that when you receive a friend that is just complaining, complaining or gossiping, you have to be grounded in godliness to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is right. Number two, you've got to ask people open-ended questions. It's really hard to connect and help people see truth if all you're doing is slamming truth down their face. Just learn to ask people open-ended questions. Those are the questions that start with H and Y. How, what, where, when, why. Asking people open-ended questions. If they're frustrated about a coworker, what is it that frustrates you about them? Well, how do they do that? How are some ways that you could help? You see, if you start asking open-ended questions, they begin to realize truth. 
Number three, offer alternatives for your friend to consider. When they're spiraling into sin, whether it's indulging into sin or frustrated in some way, offer just alternatives to consider. And lastly, you've got to be anchored in the gospel. You've got to be anchored in the gospel. So that if this person is feeling superior or self-righteous and they're just angry and they're coming down and they're being judgmental on somebody, the gospel reminds them, hey, God had to be gracious to you too. Let's be thankful for that. Or maybe they're dejected and in despair and they're feeling depressed and disconnected. You remind them of the gospel, which is, hey, Jesus Christ died for you. He loves you. And you begin to build them back up. Paul finishes with this. When you and I have an openness with each other, and we are truly encouraging each other the way the Bible describes it, he says we are granted access together. What I mean by that is this. That in this kind of holy fellowship, something is unlocked that cannot be unlocked alone. That just me and Jesus, I don't need anybody else, actually cuts you off and limits you to the fullness of what God has to offer you. St. Basil said this way, one of the old church fathers. He said, when we live our lives in isolation, what we have available becomes unavailable. And what we lack becomes unproducible. Meaning you can't get it by yourself. And so Paul tells us this, that when we are together like this, we get gifts from God. Yes, there are things that come to us from God in community that don't come to us alone. He says that we get a kind of peacefulness. In verse 23, he says that there'll be peace to the brothers, plural. There's a kind of peacefulness. That word peace is literally the word that you would use for a puzzle, having all the pieces come together to finally be whole or be right that you won't actually ever feel right if you just isolate yourself constantly from all those people that continually do wrong. Because unfortunately, you can't isolate yourself from you, and you do wrong too. We need each other. And when you have a connection with godly people in this way, with openness and encouragement, you'll experience a kind of peace that brings wholeness to your life. He says also you begin to experience love. Now look how he says this very strangely. He says in verse 23, Peace be to the brothers... And love with faith. Love with faith. What does that mean? That special wording is on purpose. He's saying that there is a love that you experience because you trust that God loves you. The vast amount of people in this world that are not receiving God's love, not because he doesn't love them, but because they don't have the faith to receive it, is huge. And he says that in a community, there's a kind of love that you receive from God that comes by faith, which means that we encourage each other to trust that you're loved. Now tell me, is that not the first place that Satan attacks you when you're all alone? Are you sure you're God's child? Are you sure that you're loved? And when you're in community with people and there's open confession and there's real encouragement... What you're reminded of is that although I feel this big about myself and I have all these problems, that in this community of faith, I'm reminded that my father doesn't just love me when I'm perfect, but he loves me all the time. That's what love by faith does for us. And he says that in this community, we have grace. But we don't just get gifts from God like peace, love, and grace. In the community, let's finish with this thought. You get grit for God. In verse 24, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. You see, in community, what happens is you and I give birth to a kind of love 
that is incorruptible. The Jews had a word for this. They called it ahava, A-H-A-V-A. It was their word for marriage or covenant love, and it was not romantic. They did not use this word to describe romantic dinners or gifts on your anniversary. Ahava was not that kind of love. It was love that says, I'll stay even though the frying pan is flying. That's what it means. Ahava meant, I will love you regardless of how things are going. And Paul says that when we gather together in community, we strengthen each other to have a love for God that cannot be corrupted, that cannot be broken. This kind of commitment is fortified in a community. In a lo- when we're alone, we tend to give up, but when we're together, we have the grit to fight for our faith. It reminds me so much of a story that I heard. Um, this was back in the day, in about 320 A.D., in the winter of it. There was an emperor on the eastern part of the, of the um, empire, of the Roman Empire. His name was Licinius. I'll be like Kevin and try to pronounce these words right. And he had made an agreement with Constantine, who was the emperor of the West in the Roman Empire. It was called the Edict of Milan, and they decided to end legally all the persecution of Christianity, and in essence, legalize Christianity in about, um, at the Edict of Milan. Well, Licinius was not a Christian, and he decided to break this covenant that he made with Constantine, and he ordered all of his Roman soldiers to go and, and renounce Christianity and demand that all citizens offer sacrifices to Roman gods. Licinius was persecuting Christians so much at this time. His edict, in fact, reached this group of people called the Thundering Legion. They were at a place called Sebaste. And the order was brought to these military people that you were to deny your faith, offer sacrifices to the Roman pagan gods, or you would be killed. Now, out of all this group of people, the Thundering Legion, who were famous fighters for the emperor, these were the best of the best, like David's men, highly trained warriors. There were 40 of them that stood out. And they said that they would not obey the edict to worship and serve idols. That they would only serve God and make no idols for themselves. Jesus Christ would be their only God, their only Christ, their only Savior. And they chose to suffer instead of that. And so in retaliation, the legion there marched these men in the winter of 320 A.D. out into the middle of a frozen lake, all 40 of them. And they ordered that their entire armor be stripped off and their clothes completely. They stood completely naked in the middle of winter on a frozen lake to be a source of torture and ultimately their death. So on the shore, the legion decided to light a fire. They had a large bonfire going. They actually, in fact, had a house that was warm, and they began to have warm baths that were in troughs that were there for the people, and they had food, and they were tempting them from the shore. And they began saying, come on, it's so much easier. Just give up on your faith and come in. And these 40 men began to pray over and over on repeat this phrase. O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. Over And over, they sang this song in prayer. Well, four or five hours into this, they were shivering and sleeping, and some of them were giving up, uh, growing tired, I should say. And the mother of the youngest soldier was there on the shore, and she pled with her son, and he finally renounced his faith. And he crawled back to shore and got into the bath and survived. And all of a sudden, they heard a faint noise. Thirty-nine wrestlers, we have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that thirty-nine wrestlers may gain the victory. 
You might sound, seem, well, okay, that's great. 39 people gave of their life that day. But in response to the cry of these soldiers, the centurion that was over them, his name is Sempronius, immediately threw down his armor, stripped his clothes on the shore, and confessed that, yes, too, I am a Christian, and walked out and changed their song back to 40. And he said, O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. And that night, 40 martyrs of Sebaste were found on ice, forever recorded because of their faithful resistance to the gods of idols. Something happens in community. Something happens when we share an openness about our lives. Something happens when we encourage each other to stick with it. And to walk together. And if we're going to survive this spiritual battle, and we're going to have victory over Satan, and we're going to enjoy the victory that Jesus won for us, we're going to have to do it together. Boy, doesn't that story just make you even more appreciative of what Jesus did for us? Because that man had grit like nobody else, and he did it all alone. Remember he told his disciples, you're all around me right now, but the moment they strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. I'll be all alone. He had grit he had strength. He had no friend in the world, and yet he was there loving us. He had a love, as Paul said, that was incorruptible. Now listen to this. If in his worst moment, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, all alone, had a love for you that could not be corrupted, even to save his own life, what do you think about that love he has for you right now today? Do you think it's grown cold? Do you think his love for you has gotten weak? Do you think his love for you has gotten tired and lazy, disinterested? Far be it, right? Because in that moment when he stood all alone, he expressed to you, I have a love that cannot ever be corrupted. That means that your sin, your shortcomings, your struggles, your doubts, your fears, your worries, all of those things cannot diminish the amount of love that he has for you. The only thing stopping you from being connected to him and winning this battle is your willingness to trust how much he loves you. And if you'll do that, you'll find victory over Satan and you'll share with each other and begin to encourage each other. And we'll have a victory in this place here in Pickerington. And that's what we want so that we can tell Satan who we are, who we serve, and we can finally someday walk with each other all the way to glory. And I hope we can enjoy that together. And if that's something you're not a part of, that's always available for you now or anytime. You can just let us know. Let's stand and sing this song. If you have a need, you can come.